You want to grab your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 13. We're going to continue on with our series this morning as we follow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob around the wilderness, around borrowed land. They were sojourners, these people who we see in the scripture, who God associated his own name. The way that we think about God is in light of these patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers. And so we're following around these men, specifically Abram, who will later become Abraham, to understand who we are speaking about when we talk about God and to show us how to live in borrowed land. Just like them, we seem to be sometimes in territory that is not our own. Places that we feel totally at home with our faith in Jesus and places that we don't feel at home. Places that we feel comfortable, places that we don't feel comfortable. We looked at a few weeks ago that we are called in this borrowed land, that all of us have a calling on our lives. All of us have been called into some kind of ministry. And not only have you been called, but you have been equipped. You've been given gifts, talents, abilities, experiences to put into place so that God would maximize your usefulness in his name. You have a calling on your life in this occupied territory, this borrowed land. And then two weeks ago, We noticed how in this borrowed land there are many opportunities for us to be afraid. But when we live in fear, when we operate in fear, when we have conversations in fear, when we talk to other people about our fears, um, it's usually when we make our worst decisions. In fact, if you start tracing back your um, most awful decisions in your life, I would almost guarantee that fear of some kind was in the mix. And today, we're just asking ourselves one question. How do we relate to our society, our culture, when our values as followers of Jesus and our society's values do not align? What do we do when our culture makes choices that we are not able to make as followers of Jesus? I mean, all you have to do is to either purchase a newspaper or look it up for free online, and you will notice that our culture and society is making choices that we would not make as followers of Jesus. I read this week that in Egypt, um, in a village called Daga, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, my Egyptian is a little rusty, um, they are enacting a tax on the 15,000 Christians who live in that village or in that city, and if you want to be a Christian and live in that village, you have to pay this tax. One family was uh, forced to pay $70,000 as a part of their tax. Uh, they couldn't pay that, and so they fled to the neighboring country. In England, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I read about a woman who was 24 weeks pregnant. They did an ultrasound on her, and the doctors believed that the baby was brain dead. It was still alive. It still had a heartbeat, but his brain didn't have any activity. And so in their culture and in ours, obviously, they encouraged her to abort that baby. And, and she actually agreed, and they gave her some pills uh, to, to start that process. The pills did not work, and so uh, they actually wanted her to deliver the baby in, in what I guess is a partial birth abortion. But when she went to deliver the baby, the baby came out totally healthy. Uh, The only complications were from its premature birth. The mother is actually considering taking legal action against the doctor who encouraged her to have an abortion. It's it's not just Egypt. It's not just England. uh, It's America. I read this week that our Justice Department uh, doesn't know what to do about marijuana. 
And so instead of making a decision whether or not it's bad or good, they're just going to leave it up to the states. And depending on uh, your history, maybe you're a state's right person and we can have that discussion somewhere along the way. But I, I remember when I was in, uh, growing up in school, we had the D.A.R.E. program. Anybody a part of the D.A.R.E. program? Yeah, the D.A.R.E. program at my school was when a police officer showed up to what was my middle school to encourage me to not do drugs. Uh, and he had a huge mustache because if you're going to be an authority in this life, you need a huge mustache. And, and, uh, and so his main drug that he was trying to you know, not get us to do was marijuana. Why? Because everybody who went through the D.A.R.E. program knows that marijuana is the gateway drug. You remember learning that? Well, apparently they're rethinking all that now. And if they're doing the D.A.R.E. program, it's kind of like, you know, hey, you know, don't do marijuana or maybe do it if you want to. We're not really sure how we stand about it, but just make sure whatever state you live in, it's okay there. That would be wrong. It just seems ridiculous uh, that uh, we're in this place. That's our own justice department. In Montana recently... A man was convicted of rape, like convicted, found guilty, no doubt about that. The judge sentenced him to 30 days in prison because, and I quote, it was not a beat-em-up style rape in Montana. He later apologized for his insensitivity to the young woman who was violated, but he did not change his sentencing. And we could go on and on and on. And you've read stories this week. You've been on websites this week that make it obvious that our values as followers of Jesus and what our culture either values or deems okay are not the same. And that shouldn't take us by surprise. The scripture told us that before any, any of us were born, before you and I were born, the scripture had already warned us that in the last days which we are living in, People were going to be godless. And people were going to make these kinds of decisions. The question is not, should we be surprised? We should be grieved, but we should not be surprised. The question is, is how do we relate to a culture like that? How how do we relate to a society like that? What is our response? As the culture moves in one direction, our society moves in one direction, and we either stay in this direction, following Jesus, how do we have a relationship with the culture? Do we pull away? Do we back out? Do we shun? Do we judge? I mean, think about our city. We live in an unbelievable city with unbelievable, an unbelievable football team, right, who's going to play today. The stadium's going to be full. You're maybe going to watch it on TV or you're going to take a nap while it's on TV. And, and it's exciting to be a part of that. And you're wearing the jerseys and the t-shirts. It's so great. It's unbelievable thing. And, and yet our city has that, and our city is one of the leading cities of human trafficking in, in America. So we have these amazing things, but then these awful things. How do I relate to a city like that? We, in this city, we have amazing and fantastic and excellent museums. And you can go and you can feel sophisticated if you like those kinds of things. And you can look at the art and you can look at the natural science. And you can go uh, look at history all displayed in an unbelievable and amazing way. And, And yet that same city every night on the news is led off by someone being murdered in some part of town. How do I relate to a city like that that has both great things and terrible things? We're a city that has industry that leads the world. Skyscrapers filled with world-class businesses. And that same city, which makes us so proud to be a part of it in one sense, 
has passed rules that make it very difficult to feed the poor here. How do I relate to a city like that? How do I relate, how do we relate to a culture like that? Thankfully, Abram, who will later become Abraham, is going to help us. So chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Lot is his nephew who has been on this journey with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So Abram and his family, his crew, his entourage are living in borrowed land, the land of the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And he's he's got a lot of stuff. He's a very wealthy man. And his nephew Lot is also with him. and And Lot has a family and Lot has things. Well, this borrowed land, this territory that they're kind of occupying at this moment is not enough for both of them and their clans begin to clash. Now that is not shocking. Wherever you have people and you have stuff, you have rivalry. From the very beginning, Cain and Abel, rivalry. I want you to think back to the the very first rival that you can remember. Can you remember your very first rival? They may not have known that they were your rival, but that first person that you sized up and you said in your mind, hopefully not with your mouth, in your mind, I want to destroy that person. I can go all the way back to, to first grade. And first grade, I had carved out a little niche for myself. I was, I was kind of a fast person. I, I, I liked to race at recess. That was kind of my thing. And then this... Uh, this boy uh, moved in. His name was Josh uh, Rubble. I still remember his name all the way to first grade. And uh, he was really nice. Uh, but unfortunately for him, he was also very fast. And we could not coexist in the same classroom. It was impossible. And so I wanted to, I wanted to challenge him and I wanted to beat him at a race. I mean, it was ridiculous. And thankfully, he moved on because he is actually faster than me. Uh, he, uh, he didn't stay in our school for very long. Maybe he was faster, but I was more intimidating. And he went home, and I don't know what happened. But, but he was not with us for very long. But first grade, I had already had a rival. I mean, you shouldn't have rivals in first grade, but it's just part of our human nature. Why? Because we always want to prove that our way is the best way, don't we? That the way that we do things is not only the way that we do things, it's the right way to do things. And we have to prove that to people. We have to be the best. That's why if you don't have kids, this is why parents talk about their kids all the time. It's because they love their kids, yes, but it's because they want to prove, we want to prove, I want to prove that the way that I'm raising my kids is the best way to raise kids. So I tell you about the sports that my kids are playing, not just so that you can know what's going on in my life, but that you can see this is the way that you should properly raise children. That's why parents talk about how smart their kids are all the time. It's because there's unspoken rivalry between parents, and we want to prove that our way is the best way. 
Public school is the best way. Home school is the best way. Classical school is the best way. Christian school is the best way. Sitting in a room reading books is the best way. Whatever your way is, you've got to let everyone know, A, what your way is, and B, that your way is the best. Rivalry is just a part of being a human. And it doesn't just shut off when we go to relate to our society. We don't just turn that human instinct off when we go to to have relationship with people that we work with. There's rivalry between believers in Jesus and unbelievers because we believe that we're right. And listen, if we don't believe that we're right, then we need to get something you know, changed in our thinking or we need to walk away from faith because we know from the word of God, we put our faith in the word of God, that Jesus really is the son of God, that he was the way to God. We believe those things. People don't believe those things. And so what we try to do is we try to prove through our living that we are right. That's why when a Christian who is lifted up in the public eye fails morally, everyone pounces on them. It's because we, I think, have come across as not only do we believe this is the right way, but we are going to show you by the way that our lives work and turn out that this is the best way. And when it doesn't turn out so well, they're quick to point it out. And instead of serving people, we just trying to outlive them. And I don't mean in length of days. And we create these rivalries with people that we work with and people that we live on the street with that, well, my way is the best way. It's the only way. And I'm going to prove that it's the only way to you. And it may be the only way according to the word of God, but we shouldn't try be trying to outlive people. We should be trying to outserve people. And what it says, look at what it says in verse eight. Then Abram said to Lot, there, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, meaning we're related. Why should we be fighting? Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus he separated from e- they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abraham gives Lot the choice. You can imagine them kind of high up on a mountain overlooking these valleys. And Abram gives him the choice. Listen, let's not fight. You just pick where you want to go. You want to go this direction. And if you want to go this direction, then I'll go that direction. If you want to go this direction, then I'll go the other direction. And Lot, uh, the, the nephew, he looked out and he saw to one direction was the Jordan Valley. So it has the Jordan River running through it. It was a fertile plain. He described it, or it's described as like the Garden of the Lord, which would have been the Garden of Eden. So it would have been very beautiful, very lush. And, and there were cities in that valley, Sodom, Gomorrah, these other places. So there was some civilization. There were things. There were people to go and to trade with, to buy from, to sell off the livestock that their herdsmen were fighting about in the first place. And so Lot, the nephew, the one who was just along for the ride, He chose that valley for himself because he believed it was the best valley. He didn't show any humility to the uncle who had allowed him to journey along with him. He just chose the best place for himself. So Lot goes with what he can see. 
He can look in that valley and he can see the fertility and he can see the cities. And so he went with what he could see. But Abram was on a journey that was a journey of faith, not sight. God had said to him in Genesis chapter 12, come with me to a land that I will show you. I haven't showed you yet, but I will show you. And I'll make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Abram was on a journey of faith and Lot wanted to just base his life on what he saw. That's what we are involved in. We are a people who, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, live by faith and not by sight. The rest of the world does not understand that, and nor should they. They are living a life based on what they can see, what they can feel with their own hands, what they can experience for themselves. We are living by faith, and there will be conflict. That's why our values don't align all the time. Now listen, this is as good as Lot's story gets. This is the last moment that we would consider Lot blessed. It's all downhill from here for Lot. You are familiar with uh, maybe his story of when Sodom is destroyed and he flees and his wife and the pillar of salt and that whole thing. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. But he forfeits his blessing when he parts from the blessed. Abram was the one blessed of God. And as long as Lot was with Abram, that blessing overflowed into Lot's life. But as soon as he parted from the blessed one, we would not read the rest of Lot's story and consider it blessed or consider it good even. Now the church... Not just our church, but the church, capital C, all around the world. We are the blessed people of God. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2 calls us. The, a chosen people. A holy nation. We are the blessed people of God. And there is a common blessing for societies who organize themselves according to the same principles that we are living by. Because that's how God has set up and orchestrated the world. When you obey his word, even if you are not doing it because it's his word, if you're just doing it because you think it's good, or you're just obeying God's word because the people before you obeyed, there is a common blessing for doing what God says is best. So people refer to America as a blessed place, and I think that is totally true. I think that God has poured his favor out on this nation for a long, 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 long time. Is it because America has some kind of special, you know, favor or we have some special place in God's heart? I don't believe that. I believe because in the beginning, when they were organizing this society, there were people there, some who were followers of Jesus, many who were not followers of Jesus in those first days, our founding fathers, but they did have a respect for what the Bible said and they organized our society, whether they believed in Jesus or not, according to some of those principles. So our society has been set up on some of the foundation that we find in the word of God, which is how we are building our lives as followers of Jesus. So there's this blessing that has come to America, not because America has a special place in God's heart, but because there are principles from God's word. And he has said, when you obey me, there is blessing. When you obey me, there is favor. And so America has enjoyed some supernatural blessing from God because, for the same reason that Lot did, 
because it didn't set itself up as an enemy of the church. It actually believed in some of the same things the blessed people of God on planet Earth did. And I think, I'm no prophet, but I think what will happen is the further apart the values of the church and the values of our society get apart, the less America as a nation or any nation, England, Egypt, Zimbabwe, whatever, I don't even know if Zimbabwe is still a country, I'm sure it is. Uh, You know, um, the further it gets away from the church values, the less it will be blessed. Because God has chosen to be with the church. And there's an overflow blessing for those who are near the church. So what does that mean? Does that mean we should get together and try to to put the church in charge of countries? No, that has never worked good. When you look in history, when the church was in charge of governments, it was always bad. It was bad for the people, and it was bad for the church. We are people, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who operate best in humility and not authority. We operate best when we feel like we live in borrowed land, not when we own the land. So the answer is not, hey, blessing comes to America if the church is in charge. No. The church is the blessed people. And we fight to keep our country in line with the church because we care about the people. Not because we want to prove our way is the best. In any society that organizes itself around the church, in line with the church, is going to experience an overflow blessing. It's not so we can all pretend to be followers of Jesus. It's not so we can look at our favorite movie stars or athletes and hear them mention God one time and be like, oh, I knew that they were a Christian. We are the blessed people of God. Whether our society is with us or against us, just like Abram, we have the blessing of God and it will overflow onto people. So Lot... His story goes downhill from here, but look how God builds up Abram. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes uh, and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if, no, so if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, uh, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So God says to Abram, I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you all the land that you need. I'm going to bless your descendants. Now, we'll start in Genesis chapter 14, verse 1, to read what happens next. And this is how we relate to our society when, like Lot, it parts from us. When, like Lot, it makes choices that we would not make. Uh, Now, this is going to be the most impressive list of names that you have ever laid your eyes on. Uh, It's Lord of the Rings style, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. These names are almost impossible to pronounce and impossible to remember. And we're going to get into this about five verses and you're going to get lost. You're going to have no idea what's going on. That's how many names are in this next set of scripture, okay? So you don't even have to listen if you don't want to right now. I'm going to summarize it for you in just a second. But this is going to be impressive if I can pull this off. Chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amphrel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedo Arlamin, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, 
Shimeber, king of Zeboim, the king and the king of Bela, that is Zor, like, of course, Bela, you know what I'm talking about, Zor, right, in parentheses. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea. Twelve years they had served Chedor Leomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephraim in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, and the Zuzi, Zuzim in Ham, the Imim in Sheva Kirathim. Now, I practiced this, so we're going all the way through it. You want me to skip it, but I'm not because I practiced it, and I'm seeing it all the way through. And the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishvashet, that is Kadesh, and, defeat, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazanatmar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedo Leomir, king of Elam. Tidal, king of Goim, Amphrael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. So that's the part you need to uh, glue into, uh, that there were one set of kings battling another set of kings. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, which is tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. So that's the important part for us. This one king, the one set of kings, went to battle against this other set of kings, and Lot was taken captive. And not just Lot, but his whole family, his whole crew, all his possessions. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Anir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So here's what we learned. One set of kings, five kings, goes to war against another set of kings, four kings. And Lot gets take, taken captive. He, his king is on the losing side. One person escape, escapes, comes to Abram. Abram was, a, Abram was a powerful man in this borrowed land. He had a lot of resources. And he said, hey, your, your nephew Lot and his whole clan, his whole stuff has been taken captive. Now, Abram could and, and maybe was offended by what Lot did. I mean, imagine how you would feel if you had looked after one of your family members, treated him as your own son, given to him out of your own resources to watch him kind of grow his own clan. And then when some conflict comes, he doesn't just back off. He, he doesn't say, I'm so sorry. I'll talk to my people and we'll move in this direction. And, and even if they couldn't live in the same place and Abram takes him up on top of that mountain and says, hey, pick what direction you want. Why didn't Lot, as the, as the younger of the two, filled with 
respect and humility, say, no, listen, Uncle Abram, I'm the nephew. You're the one with the resources. You're the one who's protected us. You pick what direction you feel God is leading you. And I'll go the other direction. Or maybe his best response, if Abram was the blessed and and Lot wanted to live a blessed life, was to say, listen, I'll fire all those people who are making um, trouble with your people. You tell me which ones it was and I will get rid of them because I am in your family That's how Lot should have responded, but he didn't. He looked out over the valley and said, yeah, that looks the best one. That looks the most fertile. That's where the cities are. That's where the people are. I'm going that direction. You can have whatever's left. And if I were Abram, well, 2,000 years later, I'd still have a grudge. But Abram didn't do that. He heard that Lot had been captured, and so he went to help. When our culture does what Lot does, which is to move in a direction that we would not go, to value things that we would not and cannot value, what is our reaction? To pull back from them, to say, hey, you're getting what you deserve. I told you you shouldn't have done that. I told you that was the wrong thing to do. To withdraw, to only be around each other, No, our reaction when our culture moves away from us, just like Lot moved from Abram, is when our society needs help, we come to help. That is the role of the blessed people of God. It is the ministry of help. The ministry of help. It's not a complicated ministry. It's not a ministry that has a lot of rules. You don't have to go to school uh, to get trained in this ministry. The ministry of helping people is how we relate to our culture. Because that's what Jesus did. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Jesus had a priority mission. Part of his mission that was above all, which is to communicate to people that he was the way to God, that the kingdom of God had come and it had come with him. That was his priority mission. Then to open the door to the kingdom by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. That was his mission, his priority mission. But yet what do we see all in the gospels? We see him putting his hands on people with leprosy. We see him coming to a man paralyzed who had been laid out on a mat all the days of his life who stank and was wrong and just laid down in the dust going to that man and picking him up and giving him the ability to walk again. We see Jesus uh, coming to a blind person who had been born their whole lives and laying his hands on their eyes and giving them sight again. We see him going to people who are possessed and overtaken by demons who had totally caused them to act like crazy and insane people and restoring their lives. It wasn't his priority mission, it's just what he did. Because the more important the mission, the more necessary the ministry of help is. If we believe as Christians that we are the blessed people of God and we have a mission to communicate that Jesus is alive and He died for sinners and he is the way to God, then if that message is important, then our ministry of help to our culture is vitally important. 
And look at what Jesus did is with, with his last breath. He's hanging on the cross, getting ready to die. He will be raised, but he's breathing out his last here. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, need to ju- and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Listen, you talk about two people who had opposite values, Jesus and this criminal, this thief, this man who probably not only stole but murdered to get the things that he won, who probably had lived for a long, long, long time with values that were totally different than Jesus. And Jesus was perfect. He never messed up. He never was tempted. Uh, He never gave in to any kind of temptation that he had where you and I did give in to temptation, he was sinless, he was perfect, he was righteousness in human form. And he's, he's there hanging on a cross next to this man who was unrighteousness in human form. And with this man's dying breath, he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, hey, listen, You chose sides and you chose wrong. And now you're just reaping what you are sowing. No, Jesus reached back out to him. The ministry of rescue with his last and dying breath. And Jesus has laid that ministry of help onto us as his people to help people, to step in when people need somebody to step in. Maybe you have someone who is lonely and the ministry of help is just going to eat with them with no agenda other than just to be a friend. That's the ministry of help. Maybe you have someone in your circle of influence who has just experienced a loss And maybe it's to to show up, to text in every day, how you doing? I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. I remember. What do you need? That's the ministry of help. Maybe it needs to be the ministry of help through a gift card for a family, maybe a coworker who could use a little bump in their finances this month because things are lean and things are tight and they're stressed. Maybe you know somebody who's going through divorce and you're just going to be supportive and you're going to ride the waves of grief with them. It's the ministry of help. It's the ministry that Jesus has laid on us. Because that's what Matthew chapter 5 says. Turn there really quickly. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You know what salt is. I don't need to tell you what it is. It does two things. Uh, It used to preserve food, but thanks to electricity, we don't need that anymore. But it would preserve things, and it makes things taste better. 
We are a preservation agent in our culture, among our culture, preserving the ways of God when we see them, encouraging people to align their lives with the way of Jesus. And we should make this world better. Like salt makes things taste better. It kills you on the back end, but it makes it taste good. I don't know what the application for that part of salt is. I, I, doubt, I doubt that they were using as much salt in the first century as we're using. It makes things taste better. Listen, do people enjoy being around you? Or do they just tolerate you because they have to? When you step into the conversation, does the conversation get better? Or does it really end kind of quick? Listen, I think you should be the most likable person on your street. And if, you, if we are going to be pressed down, it should be because of Jesus and not because we have a selfish and uncaring attitude or personality. You should be the warmest person in your office. People should love to talk to you. Why? Because we're salt. And look what happens to salt when it's not useful. It gets trampled under people's feet. The reputation of the church is being trampled under people's feet. I think at this moment in our culture, it's not because people are anti-Jesus. It's because we have not been winsome. It's because we brought no personality and life and love and compassion to the table as we relate to our society. And somehow when we have conversations with our society and culture, it just comes across as judgment and I'm trying to prove that my way is better than your way. And maybe we should just replace that kind of attitude with trying to win some kind of race at the end of time. To just say, I believe what the word of God says and I believe what I have believed. But as far as the way I'm going to relate to the people around me is I am going to help. What do you need help with? I wanna be the phone call that you make. That's how our society should feel about the church of Jesus. And if a day comes when they can't relate to Jesus so they can't relate to us, then we will deal with that when it comes. But it won't be because we did not serve in humility. Well, what if I move out to take up the ministry of help and people take advantage of it? They might. They might. And it might not work. Lot, rescued by Abram, moves back to Sodom. It wasn't a big reunion at the end. We don't get any kind of thank you from Lot. It doesn't mean that it wasn't there. It's just we just don't read about it. Listen, you take on the mantle of Jesus, pick up the ministry of help. It might not be effective. The values of our society might not move closer back to our values, but that's okay. I remember I was meeting my college roommate in Nashville. We were kind of having a little reunion moment. We were both coming into Nashville on the same day. We planned it same day. Uh, we were going to get there about eight o'clock. And so uh, eight o'clock in the morning is really early. And so I caught an early flight here from Houston and I was in the airport. Uh, he had a car he was driving in. And so I got out of the airport and I, I called him because he wasn't out there waiting for me. And it's like 8.30 in the morning. And so I called him. I'm like, hey man, I'm here. He's like, what do you mean you're here? I'm like, I'm here. I'm in Nashville. Remember reunion? 
I was like, we said eight o'clock. And he was like, dude, I'm at eight o'clock at night. I'm like, oh, fantastic. So, uh, you know, I'm either stranded for 12 hours at the, the Nashville airport, which is lovely, but not 12 hours worthy, uh, or I could do something else. So I caught a bus into Nashville and just walked around kind of downtown Nashville. I stumbled upon Vanderbilt's campus and I was really sleepy and bored. So I took a big long nap in their student union. I was, I was pretty college age at that time. I had hair still, so I could pull it off. And, um, and uh, at the, towards the end of the day, you know, I'd been spending time, I had a backpack and that was it. And I'm walking around downtown Nashville. So it was really me and a lot of homeless dudes. And so I was kind of in a community with these guys and seeing them, you know, I'd be like, hey, I saw you like, you know, 10 minutes ago at that other hotel lobby, you know? And, uh, and so at the end of the day, I'm outside of McDonald's because that's kind of where I like to hang. And uh, this, this guy comes over to me, he's clearly, or at least he looks homeless or in that kind of situation. And he goes, hey man, can I have some money? I'm really hungry. I'm like, listen, I don't have any money to give you, but I, I'm, I was getting ready to go in and get some food myself. I'll go in, I'm gonna get what I get. And I, what do you want? I'll take your order right now. He's like, oh, I don't care. You sure you don't have any money? I'm like, yeah, yeah, but if you're hungry, let me get you food. And he's like, okay. And so I go into the McDonald's and, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but I kind of go to one place and I get the same thing over and over and over again. I don't give a tremendous amount of thought to what I'm eating. And so I knew what I wanted, but I stood there for five minutes trying to think, what should I get this guy? Like, should, like how many hamburgers should I get? Should I get him a double cheeseburger? But then if I get him a double cheeseburger, he's eat it all at once. Maybe if I get him like two separate ones, then he'll have one for now, one for later. I don't know when his next meal is coming. And, and what should I get him to drink? He, he probably hasn't had a tremendous amount of water. Should I just get him a water? But then it looks like I'm kind of trying to be cheap. You know, should I get him like a Sprite? Is that somehow better? Or the, the orange drink? Like, what should I do? I stood there five minutes trying to figure out what the best thing to do was. Finally ordered the food and I got it in the sacks and I go out to him and I'm happy, you know, because when you serve, you, it makes you happy, especially when you serve anonymously. When no one in the world knows about it, that's when serving feels the best. And so I'm real excited to help this guy out, to give him a meal. And so I hand him his bag. I got a big smile on my face. I'm real happy. And he goes, what? No change? I was like, oh, okay. And I watched as this guy takes the food that I just bought him, walks across the street, to a park bench, sets the food on the bench, and walks away. And that's always the fear that comes in when we take the ministry of help. Because what you and I are tempted now to do is to be like, well, see, that's what, I, that's what I've been talking about my whole life. That's what all it is, and I, that's why I don't ever help people, because that's the kind of stuff that they do. Listen, you take on the mantle of Jesus and pick up the ministry of help, some people are not going to respond to it. Like Abram, you might go unappreciated, unnoticed, and unthanked. So why should we help? Because that's how Jesus acted towards people. And it is the only way that we should relate to our culture. And when we help, our message looks a lot more attractive. If the world starts to feel like we're just showing up to help and not showing up to prove them wrong, you will find that those Jesus conversations will come more naturally and quickly and graciously.
So take up the ministry of help. It's not a complicated ministry. You don't need to be trained for it. You just need to open your eyes. And you start thinking of this city and our country not as a place that seems to be moving far away from us, but as a place that we want to move towards even as they move away. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would lay on us the ministry of your son. And I pray that we would be a generation of people who want to undo some of the ways that we have treated our culture. God, even as we are mistreated, I pray that we would not return eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But we would move to serve, Lord, just like Abram. So we ask for your power and your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name.